morning again. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. We've been looking at this epilogue in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And it's uh, been with the focus of to kind of show how in Israel they're doing all what seems right in their own eyes. And it's being paired with the fact that Jesus says in Matthew that he was the Christ, and they're rejecting that Christ. They're rejecting him as being the Messiah. Therefore, they're not wanting to submit themselves to his lordship in their lives. Rather, they're wanting to exert their own theological proudness. They're wanting to have their own ideas, their own uh, philosophies of a way to act. And here we are in a new year, and... uh, This last chapter, we're going to see a bunch of decisions, and I think we'll find some things that are applicable as we uh, think about this new year. Judges chapter 21, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read from verse 1 all the way to verse 25. Judges chapter 21, starting in verse 1, the Word of God says, Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, Why, O Lord, God of Israel, has this come about in Israel, so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? It came about the next day that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord. For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. The sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp of Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, no one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword and the women and the little ones. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then they, Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rock of Remnon, and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh-Gilead. Yet there were not enough for them. And the people were sorry for Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives of those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? They said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, so that the tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters. For the sons of Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, 
there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Lebona. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie, wait in the vineyards, and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part of the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. It shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, that we shall say to them, Give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. The sons of Benjamin did so, and they took the wives according to the number for those who danced, whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. The sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we look at this text and we conclude this series of in Judges that uh, the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds. Father, not so that we can have just more information, but so that um, we can live differently, so that we can put it into practice. Father, help us to not just be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> have you ever tried to make something better, but uh, the more you were involved, the more you tried to make it better, it just kind of kept on getting worse? I mean, you were trying to... Make, you made decision after decision to try to make something better, but uh, the decisions really weren't uh, helping you to make the situation any better. I uh, think about the story of uh, Mary Poppins. If you remember, there's Michael Banks, and he's going to go visit his father at the bank. He's going to get to see his father at the bank, and he's got some money. But on the way uh, to the bank, he sees there's a lady, and she's selling some breadcrumbs for the birds. You remember? And uh, he really wants to get, buy some breadcrumbs from the birds. But, of course, Mr. Don's, the owner of the bank, he, um, he thinks that that's just a foolish idea. I mean, why would you, give, why would you buy breadcrumbs for birds? No, the, the sensible thing to do is, of course, put the money in the bank. That's what he, he suggests. And uh, he puts a lot of pressure on Mr. Banks and on Michael to give the money. And, um, of course, Michael takes off running. Now, in a certain sense, as we're looking at that movie of Mary Poppins, we we kind of feel like Michael's doing the noble thing. We, we, we feel very sympathetic to him and think, wow, this is really good. And then we see Mr. Don's and, boy, he, he's the villain. What a greedy old man trying to take the little kid's money and put it in a savings account. Uh, what good is that? You know, poor little birds don't have anything to eat and, and he wants to supply food for them. And so in a way, we look at these two characters and we say one's noble, the other one's a villain. Now, why, how do we get to this conclusion? It's because we're making some interpretive decisions. See, in reality, we're not thinking theologically. See, we forget what God's Word says. Matthew 6, 26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reave, nor gather into barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. So, I mean, Mr. Don seems to be thinking biblically, whereas Michael Banks... He doesn't realize that God take, takes care of the birds. And, and furthermore, because we forget of God's word, we are also caught up in entertainment and, and we forget to think theologically. 
Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, uh, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer or ruler, prepares food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Look at the ant. The ant goes to picnics, but not the same reason we go to picnics, right? Uh, they go to, to gather up. They're saving because they know what times want to come when they can't gather. So, I mean, Mr. Don seems like the sensible one, and Michael Banks really seems the one to be acting on emotions. You might be saying, Daniel, you're being really silly. I mean, it's just a movie. It's a beloved movie by many. Well, it is kind of silly being picking on poor old Mary Poppins movie, but I'm afraid that in this new year, we might be more tempted to make decisions based on emotion than on biblical reason or theological reason. We, we might be tempted to make uh, decisions based on what we feel is the right thing to do at the time, rather than to be guided by God's wisdom that he says to ask for and he freely gives. As we think about this new year and we think about this text that we're in, we see a lot of decisions being made. And each decision seems like rather than helping the situation, well, it does help in one sense, but it implicates and it damages a bunch of other people. And that's what we want to see. And, and the temptation is that we go through this new year making decisions based on our emotion rather than on biblical reason, rather than looking to see what's going to glorify God. Oh, that's a hard decision to make, right? There's the, the desire for self-gratification, and then there's the desire to glorify God, and they don't always parallel. They're not always the same. Sometimes they're different. Now, historically, we see this situation, and it's just a terrible, terrible sense of uh, uh, narratives that we've been seeing. And hopefully, it gives us a new appreciation to the book of Ruth, because Ruth happens, if you just turn the page and you look at Ruth, it happens during the time of the judges, when the judges were governing. So all the things that happened, happened in this time when all this sinfulness is happening. Israel went three days in battle with Benjamin. He had a force of 400,000. Benjamin only had 26,000, yet it took him three days, and God finally gives him the victory on the third day. Israel wins, but they didn't stop with just punishing the guilty. They were angry, and they started just wiping out Benjamin. They leave 600 men. They're hiding up in the caves of uh, Ramon, which is uh, translated the pomegranate. It's a place that has a bunch of, if you cut open a pomegranate and you see all these little caves, it's kind of like that. And they were, they're hiding in all individual little caves. And uh, here is Israel, and they've gathered together. Now, as we look at this, what I'm going to be articulating, what I'm going to try to be persuading us is that Christians must seek and wait for God's wisdom so as not to cause more pain to those around us. We have to seek and wait for God's wisdom. Or else what we're going to do is damage more than help people. Now, we see in verses 1 through 7, we see the problem. And if you take notes, it'll be problem with a little p. What problem with a little p? Uh, we see some information that wasn't given to us before. In chapter 20, it didn't tell us that they had made this promise, but now the narrator is saying the situation is more complex because while they were in Mizpah, they made a promise. Now, Mizpah, you remember, is that place where 
Jacob, he was he decided he was fed off with his father-in-law Laban. He decides to take off. Laban figures out that he's left, and he goes after him, and he's about to reach him. And you remember, it was uh, God comes to him at night and tells him, "Be very, very careful what you say to Jacob, because he's got the promise." And so the next day, they make a covenant, a covenant of peace, Genesis 31. And there in that covenant of peace, they, they do it at Mizpah, which is the Lord watch between me and you. So in a way, it has kind of a, a special significance here that they're at Mizpah, but it also has a very negative connotation in the book of Judges because it's in Judges chapter 10 that Israel, all of Israel, had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, God sent uh, Ammonites to persecute them and to, and to uh, make them suffer. And uh, they, they repented and they turned to God and they said, God, please save us. You remember what God said there in Judges chapter 10? He says, go ask your idols. I'm fed up with you. Go ask your idols to save you. And in chapter 11, they go and ask Jephthah. They ask Jephthah, who was the son of a harlot, to come and be their savior. Mizpah in Judges has a very negative connotation. Here they are, and in the heat of the moment, they're mad at Benjamin, and they said, and you know what? We're going to go to war, and you know what? We're not going to let them be our son-in-laws. Ha! See about that. They made this promise before God. And as it says there, as it says in verse um, uh, 5, it, it's a great oath. Not, not just any oath. It's a great oath. Now, as we look at this, we see a sequence of verbs that look like they're being very, very pious people. It says in verse 2, they came to Bethel, the house of God. They sat before him until evening. That's amazing. Sat till evening. You go a couple minutes past 12 and everybody's out, right? Not here they sat until evening time. And then what did they do? They lifted up their voices to God and, and they wept bitterly. It seems like they're being very pious, very godly. And they say, uh, why, O Lord God of Israel? Has this come about in Israel? So as one, one tribe should be missing today in Israel. It's a very interesting how the narrator describes the words that the Israelites are saying to God because they're using a, a Hebrew passive form. Now, the, the Hebrew passive form gives this idea of that they weren't involved. Uh, and it, it's very similar to how in Venezuela they use this. Like, for example, say I was bouncing a ball and I broke one of the angels, right? Uh, I would not say I broke it. In Venezuela, we would say it broke. Uh, well, who did it? You wouldn't say I broke it. You would say it, it broke. That's how you would say it. Like if it just happened all on its own, like it just decided to fall apart, right? Uh, this is the idea that it's giving. It's giving these passive type verbs like, like they just somehow, the women in Benjamin just disappeared. They just fell down dead. And what's happening is that they are ignoring their responsibility in what happened. Where God gave them victory to judge those who had sinned, but then they went crazy on a killing spree and wiping people out. But now they're like, how did this happen? I don't know. They just seem like they don't understand. And what, what do they do the next day? Verse 4, they, they, they arose early. They built an altar they start offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. It's just amazing what they're doing. It seems so very pious. In fact, it reminds us almost of, of 20, verse uh, 26, is it verse 26? Where they uh, come before the Lord and they're offering 
burnt offerings and peace offerings, and it seems very similar to what had happened before. But there's a difference between chapter 20 and chapter 21. And that in chapter 21, God is silent. He doesn't talk to them. He doesn't come before them. So it indicates that there's a difference in their hearts. Something totally different is going on. In chapter 20, there was a suffering that led them to repentance. But now, what's motivating them in chapter 21? Is it repentance for the sin that they did? No. See, they felt sorry, as it says in verse 6, for their brother Benjamin. They have compassion, it's the word. Compassion. Uh, they are regretting that Benjamin is in the situation that they're in. It's not towards God that they had sinned against God. They feel bad for their brother. And it's specifically what they feel bad for is that it looks like one of the tribes are missing. That one of them is not there at the table. That someone from the outside is going to look and say, hey, the family's not all together. You know what I'm talking about. Fighting in the car on the way to church. And then you get to church and, hey, brother, hey, sister, how you doing? Why? We don't want it to appear that there's something going on. They don't want it to appear that something's going on. Are they looking at the heart? They're not looking at the heart. They want the appearance of Israel to be intact. So they're sorry for their brother Benjamin. It says, because it, one is cut off. Well, they cut it off. But they're not going to acknowledge their responsibility. So they say, what shall we do for, the, uh, for wives who are left since we have sworn by the Lord not to give any of our daughters in marriage? What are we to do? They ask of the Lord. They ask of God. But 48 hours pass and he hasn't answered them. And in a way, they're like, uh, who does this God think he is? I mean, we waited a whole 48 hours. He hasn't answered. Or some of them are probably thinking, hey, I got, I got fields to harvest. I got a honeydew list that's so long. We, we got to get this ball rolling. Let, let's figure out. We've got a problem. We've got to find a solution. So they start thinking about what they're going to do. And the solution we find is uh, from verses 8 through 13. So we see a problem, little p. Now they're going to do a solution. Verses 8 through 9 says, And they said, What is there of the tribes of Israel who did not uh, come up to the Lord at Mizpah? Now you remember from chapter 20 that basically their idea was that all of Israel had gathered. That there was representation from everywhere. But now they're in a little bit of a legal bind. And so they either have a very good lawyer or they have a middle child who is going to try to figure out how they can get their way out of this situation. They're going to try to use legal things, to, and so they're going to start splitting hairs. And they'll say, well, wait, wait, maybe we can find a town or a village where someone hasn't come. And sure enough, they find uh, Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead on the other side of Jordan, part of Manasseh, small little town. No one has showed up in that town. Oh, there was people from Manasseh there. There was people from Gilead there. Jabesh Gilead, a little, little town, there was no one there. And of course, they had made this oath. Now, in this oath, we have to try to figure out what is going on here in this oath. 
were they, were they making this promise about those who didn't come uh, because they thought theologically, well, they're favoring Benjamin, and if they're favoring Benjamin, then they're favoring Canaanite behavior? I doubt that they were parsing theology that well. Uh, rather, they said, if they're not for us, they're against us, and so now they're going to use Jabesh Gilead and go against them. And they send 12,000 warriors, brave warriors, to attack them. You can imagine being Jabesh Gilead. You're an Israelite. You're there working in the town, and you see here comes 12,000 soldiers. They're Israelites, just like you. Like, hot dog, we're going to go conquer something, aren't we? We're, we're going to go, we're going to expand our territories, aren't we? I mean, they probably took out some flags and started waving at the people. Little to realize that they were there to kill them. Oh, they're traitors, killing their own people. And to do what? To grab the young ladies and take them away. They're going to traffic the girls to be able to bring peace to Benjamin. You say, that doesn't make sense. Oh, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't make sense at all because here they're making, here their solution is let's go and kill off a whole town and take the young ladies and then we'll give them. Now, this is a very sad situation because they're wanting to establish peace. But what type of peace can there be? And look what they're going to do. They're going to bring back the inhabitants to Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. There's something very interesting that's going on here that's a rhetorical use that's happening in the, in the literature. Uh, never does it occur in the Old Testament, and I say never, none that I can think of, when a land was conquered by Israel and then it got named again for what it was named before. For example, in chapter 19, it talks about Jebus, which, was not, which would eventually be Jerusalem. But once David conquers Jerusalem, they don't call it again Jebus, they call it Jerusalem. But here, here's Shiloh, which was conquered back in Joshua 18, verse 1. Joshua, who had put the tabernacle there, Joshua, who had made that his headquarters, all of a sudden, Shiloh is being called a land of Canaan. So there's something going on here where instead of it looking like the place where the tabernacle is, the place where the headquarters of Israel is at, it's appearing more like Canaan than like Israel. Unfortunately, this can happen in churches. Churches can appear more like the world than they appear like the bride of Christ, like the body of Christ. And it's unfortunate because it can also happen in families, where families have values, families have desires, families go after things, and it looks exactly like any family of the world, but not a Christian family. And that's sad, because the comment here that Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, could be said of many churches here in the States. And you say, how is that possible? Don't you realize you're in America? Oh, we have a terrible problem with racism in this country, do we not? We have so many churches spread across the South, and yet there's so much racism going on, which means somehow there's not a gospel being preached there. Somehow they are more like the world than the body of Christ. It happens in families too. 
So here we see our situation, and I think there's some things that we can apply from these verses. The first thing that we can apply is that there's reconciliation without repentance. Israel has had their um, times when there have been these battles between the family members. Uh, you think about Jacob and Esau in Genesis uh, 32, 17 through 33, 11. Uh, they have this conflict that's going on, but they reconcile through repentance when Jacob decides to give offerings to Esau. Even though he had stolen his birthright, now he's going to repay him and make amends by doing these offerings. You see in Genesis 37, you remember that Joseph was sold into Egypt by his family members. Now they come back down to Egypt and uh, they, they want to have food and he needs to find out if they're repentant, right? And of course he does all these maneuverings. The story is hilarious. It's great reading. And sure enough, he finds out that God had worked in their lives and they were repentant of what they did. But here in our Judges 21, we see no repentance. They want to reconcile a broken relationship by kind of sweeping everything under the rug, putting it out right nice and neat, and saying, everything's good. But there can't be a reconciliation without repentance. You can't just say, well, I did bad, you did bad, let's just move forward. No. There has to be an acknowledgement of what was done bad. And you have to seek forgiveness. Because until that point, you can't have reconciliation. In fact, they're not going to have reconciliation. At this point, you would have thought that maybe they would have sent the Levi over there to uh, Rimon, and he would have told them to repent, to humble themselves before the Lord. But instead, they decide to sell, send 12,000 soldiers to go wipe out a town. Now, we have to look at the problem more in depth. And uh, I don't want to complicate this too much. But we see two things happening here. The first is, they are wanting to hold on to a promise they made. God had commanded in Exodus 20, 16, not to bear false witness. So if you promise something, you have to keep it. Because that goes in line with what um, God's character is. God is truth. And when he speaks, he does things. He, he doesn't say, I'm going to do this, and then say, oh, I forgot, or I promised to do this, and I'm not going to do that anymore. No, what he says is true, and so in bearing fault witness uh, and keeping our promises, we are reflecting the character of God, and that God is truth, and we are also being truthful. But we have to notice here that God never commanded them to make that promise. He didn't. He commanded them not to bear false witness, but he never commanded them to make that promise. God did command Israel not to murder. And he commanded uh, not to murder the vulnerable, Exodus 22, 22 through 24, and also uh, to care for those who are vulnerable, Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29. So those are direct commands. He directly commanded not to murder and to care for the vulnerable. He commanded not to bear false witness, but he didn't command them to make this certain promise. What's interesting here is that they're going to hold on tightly to the promise rather than the clear revelation of God. Isn't that interesting that they would do that? Isn't that fascinating that they would do that? Now, um, I, I don't have time to be polemic. I, I, would, I would like to be polemic. Um, but we sometimes fall into this. 
where we will develop a theology not based on something directly that God says, and we'll hold on to that tightly. And then what God has directly commanded, we'll kind of forget and ignore. We'll put it aside. Or we'll explain it to be insignificant. And that's what they've done here. Now, the other thing that they're doing is that uh, they should have thought, boy, has God made a system by, by which if we make an error, we can make it right? And then some bright person would have said, oh yeah, there's the law and the sacrificial system, and we can bring an animal. They should have realized this promise was totally wrong, and we need to repent of it. But instead of doing that, they decide to hold on to their promise rather than obeying God's word. And when we look at this, pro this problem in depth, there's an issue of pride that they're going to hold on to their promise and they're going to disregard what God has uh, provided for them through repentance. Now, of course, this develops another problem. And the second problem is uh, one that they should have realized before they brought the two companies together there at Shiloh, the, the girls from Jabesh Gilead and the men. And they got 600 men and they got 400 girls. Uh, someone should have been like, I, I think we're lacking 200. Uh, but but they, they don't do that until they finally get there and they're like, well, this group doesn't have any wives. So they've got this other problem. In this situation is a little bit different because in the first situation they had a problem, they at least asked God. They built an, offer, uh, an altar and they started offering. But this time they're not going to even do that. They're like, it went so well the last time, we can just make this decision on our own. We don't need to be asking God. So what do they decide to do? Well, verse 19, it says, Behold, there's a feast. They're going to bring a solution. The solution is 19 through 24. And as they're going to bring this uh, uh, solution is that there's this feast. Now, this feast doesn't match up with any of the feasts that God had ordained. It doesn't match up with any of them. It involves uh, the harvest of a vineyard, and it happens in Shiloh. So the best idea that one can think about is this, is that maybe there was a feast there in Canaan, and they decided to make it uh, Christian, per se, or, or to make it Jewish, to, to make it uh, one that honored God. So it looks like what they're doing is taking something from Canaan, and they're going to redeem it, to, to use it for their own purposes. And it involves this, uh, this dancing that's going on. Uh, and it tells the location of where it is. And look what they command. This is the elders. This is the leaders of Israel. They, they commanded the sons of Benjamin, verse 20, saying, Go, lie and wait in the vineyards. Watch. Behold, the daughters of Shiloh come out, take part in the dances. Then you shall come out of the vineyards, and you shall catch them. The idea is to snatch them to take them away. It's sad. Because basically it reflects what happened in Gibeah, where the men looked and they saw the Levite and they waited and then they came at night and they tried to take him, but instead they took the concubine because the Levite threw her out. Basically now, the sin that started all this, the elders of Israel are encouraging the whole tribe of Benjamin to do it. And what's motivating them? A love for God? No. It's the compassion that they have for Benjamin. It's the remorse that they feel for Benjamin. What's moving them is not a love for God, but it's a love for the idea of Israel. That's their solution. 
And look what happens as it says. Verse 23, Benjamin did so. They, they didn't put up a fight. They said, no, this is wicked. This is evil. We'll never partake in this. No, they're like, hot dog. Let's go. Where's Shiloh? Up we go. And look what they did. It has these verbs that says, and they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt cities and lived in them. Here they traffic girls and then domesticate, build their lives. Isn't that fabulous? No, it's wicked. It's terrible. They're not looking to glorify God. They're having problems, and instead of consulting with God, they're deciding that they're going to give the solution themselves. What could they have done? Well, they could have not neglected God. God is silent here with Benjamin, and I'm not... Uh, it might be that because Benjamin never repented, that God didn't want them to stop continuing to kill. That's an idea. You wipe out Benjamin altogether. Another idea is Deuteronomy 11:27 and Deuteronomy 15. If Benjamin would have been obeying God, God promised that those who obey his law, he would have blessed. So they could have gone back to the law and said, Benjamin, you're lacking wives, start obeying God, and God will somehow bless you. But they don't do that. The other thing we see in this solution that they give is the unfortunate effect of success. The unfortunate effect of success. See, it went so good the first time, we don't need to consult God the second time. Everything went, well, we got 400 women this last time. We don't need to, about 200? 200 is nothing. We can figure this out on our own. And unfortunately, sometimes when we succeed at doing bad, we think it's a good thing. And we go farther and farther away from God. And now we finally reach the problem. And if you're taking notes, I would put it in all caps, the problem. Verse 25. And in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that's the real problem with this whole text, is that they were not submitting themselves to the lordship of God. They had accepted him as king, but they weren't living that way. They had verbalized a covenant with him, but it wasn't coming out in their practice. And now everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone is sovereign. Everyone is deciding, I'm going to do what's best. And they're just like Canaan. They're just like the world. Christians must seek and wait for God's wisdom so as not to cause more pain to those around us. How long do you have to wait until God gives you wisdom? Because if not, what we're going to do is hurt people rather than help them. Earthly wisdom and earthly compassion only hurt the innocent and complicates our problems. We might want to be so compassionate to somebody and disregard God altogether. How can we do this? What we're looking at here is a disciple is a person who knows God and submits to his lordship and his life so that he can live wisely in this world. How do you do that? You start making decisions based on God's word based on his character of what you find out about him rather than on emotions. Instead of going like how they did where they decide, well, I'm going to just do these things. Look, poor little Benjamin. We've got to help him. They should have consulted God and waited 
until God responded. They should have confessed their own sins and humbly sought Him. Here we're coming into a new year. And this year we're going to have a ton of decisions to make. All types of decisions. Decisions personal, decisions on our church level. A lot of decisions we'll have to make. And the question is, how will we engage in those decisions? And I'm, I'm sure that there will be times when our emotions will get the best of us. And uh, in a family situation, let's do this. I want my way. It requires repenting of that, apologizing. You can't have reconciliation without repentance and apology. In a church, we might get our emotions a little bit, we have to have it this way. We need to use biblical guidance as we move forward in this year. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we look at this text and we consider it. They're moved by compassion to save Benjamin, but they're not moved to glorify you. They confuse the two. Father, I pray now as we consider our own lives and our church that we're at, I pray that we will be able to make decisions that, that glorify you, not based upon emotions, not based upon what feels good, not based on human compassion, but based on a love for you and a love for people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me? Uh, Charles is about to lead us in a